This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That's 20 years of dedicated coverage of Texas art spaces and artists, 20 years of hard work by our editors and writers, and 20 years of showing the world all our state has to offer. Since we're a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to Glass Tire to keep our work going, you can become a sustaining donor or make a one-time gift at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you like our podcast, please consider subscribing to us and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and a welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And today we're talking about private museums. Uh, this is a really broad topic, and there's a lot of conversation and a lot of history and a lot of really a lot of stuff that's happening right now around private museums. Uh, but the reason we're having this conversation now is because. Eli Broad recently died. Uh, for those of you who may not know or need a refresher, Eli Broad was a philanthropist based in LA. Um, I believe he was 87, Christina? He was, he was getting up there. Yeah, so, uh, and he has given, or he gave, to a number of museums uh, in Los Angeles. There are wings of museums named after him. There are pieces, but... Perhaps what he's best known for is the Broad, which is his and his wife's uh, private collection museum. It was like a hundred and twenty some odd million dollar construction project in Los Angeles. It opened in the mid twenty teens, and um, it's, I mean, one of the more substantial and famed and talked about private museums, definitely of the last ten years. And part of that is because his collection is blockbuster American, mostly contemporary art. So, you know, huge pieces, uh, a great collection of works by Jeff Koons. Um, it may have became known the Broad as kind of like a selfie center. <laughs> like it's, it's definitely one of those museums that has pieces that people like to take selfies in, but it's a collection that doesn't really exist in that form. Um, in anywhere else or in many other places, that's at least mostly publicly accessible. Um, but with his death, you know, there's a lot of conversation around the legacy of the Broad. Museums like this that are started by one person or by a couple, you know, sometimes they have charters, sometimes they have more restrictive uh, kind of deals around them and their collecting and their future and what the museum can and can't do. Um, and also just different ways that these private collectors who start these museums or foundations or whatever you call them, how they kind of control the the legacy, the content, it varies so widely, and there are so many of these now in the U.S. that this is this is just a, a big topic, especially because a number of these institutions have really been uh, founded since 2000. Like, this is a pretty new concept. So about 80% of the private museums in the world have been started since 2000, since the year 2000. The United States uh, has about 40, has more than 40 of them, which is this, you know, the second largest um, set of private museums outside of South Korea. 
it's a it's a you know it's an American tradition you could say the the Morgan the Phillips the Barnes collection I mean a lot so many of our most famous museums and our most storied museums were were basically private philanthropical museums and collections when they started and then they kind of branch out and become more of a public trust type thing but um, so it's not that this is new, but I will say that museums generally, especially contemporary art museums, are still kind of a new phenomenon. I mean, the Guggenheim, which would be kind of considered the, the, the prototypical uh, art museum of the United States, that launched in 1939. So museums as we know them, art museums as we know them and think of them, are not even 100 years old. Um, so, you know, when people start to wring their hands a lot over trends, um, you can also just say the history of this is still extremely new. We don't really know where we're going. The fact that incredibly rich people, uh, start their own museums is not new, however, despite the fact that there's a, a massive trend of it happening. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, there's also a difference between kind of in the ideology of people, uh, of, of wealthy patrons who bought things like Rembrandt's and Van Gogh's and, you know, who were buying works from a market of artists who were largely deceased. And a lot of the private museums that are opening nowadays, like you said, are contemporary and they're buying artists who are in the apex of their career or who are kind of on the upward trajectory. So there is a lot of like museum, market, collector auction dynamics going on that don't necessarily flow in the same way um, as the institutions definitely that are more established. And it's interesting to note, once you start thinking about this, how many of the institutions that are established really started off as those private museums. So there are some of these where if you don't think about it too deep, it's just a museum, but the legacy is really there and it's entrenched and you know and so over time some of these private museums that were just showing the collection of the founders you know they expand and they start to become more or less public entities we have them here in uh texas for sure the nasher the amon carter um and i actually i'm not to be honest you know the nasher was always going to have big exhibitions that it brought in there are weird stories like the Norton Simon, which started as the Pasadena Art Museum and then kind of became a private collection museum and then sort of became a more public museum again. But, you know, if we try to define private museums um, against public museums, it starts to get a little bit weird, actually, because the tax incentives given to private museum founders and the foundations that they really operate as, um, the tax incentives are so massive that even the U.S. government is still kind of puzzling over how to deal with this because it almost makes them a publicly backed entity, right? You know, we think of our public museums like the Dallas Museum of Art or the MFAH or whatever. They're, they're getting a lot of public money in order to exist. They're getting a lot of philanthropical money as well. But um, So these, these museums operate without the kind of oversight that happens with uh, the public weighing in, um, without the boards, without the, but that's not to say that they're not doing something interesting. Some of the biggest criticisms, however, and you've kind of already hit on a little bit of this, is that these private collectors can start to really, or that they do and can, uh, have a huge influence on artist careers and the market and the trends of what's being collected. Um, 
and without you know without a bigger public discussion another uh, really common criticism is that a lot of these people just buy all the same stuff you know um, you go into a private museum in the United States and you will almost certainly see a Jeff Koons piece <laughs> why because why wouldn't you but at the same time that kind of takes away from the potential incredible interest that a private museum can uh, present which is a a very quirky, you know, uh, outside of the mainstream collection, which these would maybe be smaller, um, smaller. And they also, there's also, you know, there's different ideas about how they let in the public. They could, they get to control a lot of that. You think about something like the warehouse in Dallas, Howard and Cindy Rachowski's private foundation building. I don't know that you would even, it's definitely a private collection. Um, it would be considered a private museum. It's not really open to the public. And then you got the Broad, which is one of the most, probably one of the most attended museums, certainly for its size, uh, in the world. Uh, and one of the most attended museums in Los Angeles, which is actually saying something. Well, in terms of attendance and these museums guiding people, I feel like it's, it's such a big conversation about whether these museums are making the history for themselves or making history in real time or whether they're just following ideas that are already happening. Because one of the things that is kind of discussed, but not really, but kind of discussed, you know, just like around the water cooler is that the collectors who are starting these museums, you know, if you have a foundation or a museum like this and you're doing public presentation of the work and you're loaning the work out to other museums, that's kind of part of the purview of these places being considered uh, foundations or museums and being able to have those tax breaks is that you're, you know, letting the work go to the MFAH or the Met or the Guggenheim and you're, you're making it accessible, right, to these public institutions. Part of the kind of whole complexity is that if I'm a, a gallerist in New York and I'm trying to place work so that the, the market around it gets better and better and so that it's in more prestigious collections and gets shown more, am I going to give it to... Joe Schmo, who just will hang it on the wall of their house and their friends will see it? Or am I going to sell it to the Rubels, who have a foundation and a museum and a sprawling campus, really, in Miami, and who will put that work in their 30 American show and travel it to museums across America? Um, that kind of seems like the more logical choice. So this loop just gets more interconnected and interconnected, and it is self-perpetuating. Well, and, they, and these people have a, 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 an ungodly amount of money, or rather I should say a godly amount of money, so they can, they can buy stuff. Here's the thing. The cycle, and another criticism of private museums, again, we're, we can't stop this trend, and I don't think we should try to, but these collectors are so wealthy, they can buy the newest big, or commission the newest big marquee works by the biggest artists. They can afford it, and they do, and it drives the art prices up, to where museums that we think of as, you know, the DMA and the MFAH can't afford these works anymore. They have to get their own collectors who are on their board or whatever to buy the work in and then donate it to them. So there is some argument that it's keeping pretty important work by fairly important living artists out of our regular museums. They're only really going into private museums. But again, just driving up the market price of all these artists to these kind of crazy levels that we're seeing these days. Of course, billionaires are sort of being minted every day, it seems like, in this global economy. So that's not going to go down either. I think prices will just continue to go up. Well, Christina, what do you think about, like, there are some artists in these 
mega private institutional collections. I'm thinking I'm I'm kind of using the Broad as an example. You and I went to the Broad back in like 2017 or 2018. Um, so we can kind of ground the conversation in this a little bit. And of course, with the library's death. Um, but there are artists in that museum who, of course, are already in institutional collections and that museums would like more of. People like Ellsworth Kelly, Roy Lichtenstein, uh, Jeff Koons is an example. Um, but how much do you think these private collections or private institutions are taking away from artists that museums, I don't know, that they may consider buying, but they may not buy yet because they're not at that level? Or is that even an argument? Because there are things like the how the DMA buys or used to buy out of the Dallas Art Fair, um, and they weren't buying, you know, uh, pieces that were millions of dollars. They were buying artists who were more up and coming and looking to kind of add to their collection and propel that career a little bit. So is there... Is that barrier to entry, is it something that is super significant or is does it just kind of seem more significant, but they're, but these institutions are just buying up things that a lot of museums already have enough of? I mean, we talked about deaccessioning recently too. You know, that's kind of... This, um, this conversation overlaps a little bit with that conversation that we just had a few weeks ago about deaccessioning because there's a couple of things about that and, and I'll sort of, I'll start to sort of answer your question as best I can. I don't know, but... Like you think about the Rubels, I mean, they almost as a couple sort of single-handedly made the career of Oscar Murillo, right? So, and I don't know, that was a bit of a, a crazy kind of roller coaster in terms of how, what happened with his prices and his career and his, and his public image and all of that. But, and these are more adventurous collectors too. The Rubels have, I mean, their collection is, it's huge. It's like, I think there are more, more than 7,000 pieces in that collection, which is really, that's a huge collection for a private collection. I don't know the answer to that ex exactly because I'm not sure it's going any differently from how it's gone for the last century in terms of private museums versus public ones. And, and again, this is only a hundred year old uh, tradition, but I was thinking about Glenstone um, in Maryland, which, you know, was a, a very large private sector museum. And, you know, the newest um, pavilions that they're building are going to be dedicated to Bryce Martin, Charles Ray, Michael Heiser, Cy Twombly. And it's kind of like, well, that's not new. None, nothing about that is new. Um, we and, and which actually I'm going to go ADD real, real quickly on you is a lot of these places. Glenstone is interesting and, and uh, Crystal Bridges is interesting because they're kind of outside of they're outside of these centers where so many of our museums and nonprofits are. But I will say that so many of these private museums are just cropping up in places where there are already tons of museums. <laughs> so most of them are in New York, Los Angeles. Here in Texas, uh, we have the warehouse. Ruby City opened in San Antonio. Which is the collection of Linda Pace. Right, which is still relatively new, and we're still excited about it. And and we should actually talk a little bit about the architecture of some of these dedicated buildings because that one's that one's great. But um, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I feel like museums. Um, when I say museums, pu public museums, they still have uh, acquisition budgets, right? But um, in my even in my experiences in selling work, um, I've had I have work that was purchased from my gallery by private collectors and given to a museum, and I've had work purchased directly by a museum. I know that the method or the the protocols are a little bit different 
uh, from one thing to another. But, you know, Road Agent was a very new gallery showing only new artists, you know, by uh, historical standards. So I don't I don't know the answer to that. I What do you think? I'll tell you what I think. But uh, first, let's hear a quick word from one of this week's podcast sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by Texas Talks Art, a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. Tune in every Tuesday at noon CST for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021. Register for upcoming artist talks and watch the past talks at texastalksart.org. So you were going to answer your own question, which I, I <laughs> sort of failed to answer but because I went off on another uh, track, but go ahead. I think one of the reasons that I asked you the question, Christina, is because I don't I don't know. I definitely think these private museums are perpetuating the market in a really obvious way that's that we all just kind of know and accept and and uh, are fine with in order to be able to see this art all in one context. I mean, walking through the Broad, it felt like I was walking through a ton of different Chelsea galleries all at the same time. And in a way, I mean, there there's a benefit to that of having all of that collected in this one place because all of that is so influential right now um, to the art world and on the wider world. Like, and showing that to people who may not get to New York or may not know that those galleries exist or may not know, may not have the time to walk through all of them. To me, it feels like a weird benefit to that. It's like people don't necessarily need to see this. This is like the the shrine of capitalist art market in America. But at the same time, I really enjoyed seeing all of that work. Yeah, I've been to the Broad three times, actually. After we went, I took my mom back to L.A., and then I went back with a friend of mine. Every time I go to the Broad, I enjoy it so much. It's actually, you kind of feel like you, you should be cynical, maybe in our position. But once you get in there and see the work and see the way it's displayed and see the building, it's it's actually a pretty joyful experience. We had fun at the Broad, you and I. Um, it was fun to see that work, and he's not buying the worst of the stuff. He's buying the absolute best stuff by these artists. I mean, these are like the the uh, landmark pieces by these artists, and it's nice to see them. Um, I And the building really lends itself to that, actually. I mean, it's a great building, and I think it is. I, you know, I'm sure there are detractors, but... Um, so some of these private museums will build dedicated buildings and they'll bring in these, you know, really wonderful architects or, or really well-known architects. Starchitects. <laughs> yeah, to build their buildings. And, and then the building becomes almost as much a part of the conversation. And certain, certainly can be as much um, an influence on how on what's displayed. And, and potentially, I would think, almost the way language works, it, it probably even informs how the collectors go about collecting because they know that, that the thing is going to show up in their museum first. I was thinking about, 
You know, you mentioned um, going through the Broad feels kind of like going through big Chelsea galleries, and you're talking about mega galleries, which, you know, the mega galleries, as we've talked about many times in podcasts and in other, in other uh, forums on Last Tire, mega galleries, you know, at this point are doing museum-level shows. I mean, that's just what they do, including the scholarship and research that goes along with it, including even having school groups come through. So... You know, it's not like Gagosian isn't operating similarly to a private museum, which, you know, and now that we've got Pace opening Super Blue in Miami, which is a, what is it? Is it a public museum? Is it a private museum? It's a gallery. It's a commercial gallery that owns an immersive art space. I think we're going to see this more and more too. I wouldn't be surprised. So Pace starts this. Next, it'll be Zwerner and Hauser and Worth, or will they even bother because they're building their own big spaces and having their own big shows however they want to. It's just another way of getting into a market-driven thing rather than a... Uh, I'll say this. It's very much a response to consumer demand or audience demand rather than the other way around. A museum which would traditionally say, we're going to put together a show that we think will be good for the public, Right. Uh, now instead, museums are being are increasingly trying to figure out what the public wants or likes or will show up for, and they will either commission pieces that reflect that or they'll put together shows that re- reflect that. And and there's a kind of need for the spectacular, as we know. These private museums um, have the money and the means to make that happen in a way that public museums they move too slowly. They don't have enough money. You know, they can't necessarily travel the show. If it's a site-specific installation, it might work at one place but not another, etc. Well, Christina, it's interesting that you bring up kind of that general concept because I feel like, you know, we would be remiss to not talk at least a little bit about the Menil in Houston in this conversation because... You know, like we said, a lot of these museums have been founded since 2000. So the conversation and the the way that they're dealing with the the death of their benefactors and all of this is is still very much kind of in question. Um, so even you know, even though the Manil's not fifty years old, uh, it is almost kind of like a, a standby in this genre of private museums. And I think they're also a really interesting example, John and Dominique de Manil. Um, in thinking about collectors who weren't necessarily buying market-driven things. Like when they started collecting surrealism, surrealism wasn't necessarily market forwards. It wasn't necessarily the most shunned, but it wasn't it wasn't what was happening right then and there. And they made the effort to bring the artist to Houston. You know, there's famously, I believe, a photograph of like Renee Magritte um, in a cowboy hat at a rodeo. Like th- there's a effort of collecting that the Damon Neils did. And maybe part of it is that we're looking back on it with rose colored glasses. Um, but the idea is that they were collectors who really kind of like collected their heart and drilled deep to make a collection that they thought would be beneficial to the city. It wasn't a collection that the city was asking for. I wish here's, I think a fear that's in the middle is such a treasure and everyone knows it and it, and it continues to be, But, I mean, the Manils were really interesting collectors who were uh, kind of forward-thinking and also very much their own people. Again, one of the... And that's reflected in its astonishing collection. Um, It's a tiny museum with an encyclopedic collection. Um, 
But I think one of the you know one of the main criticisms that would be leveled at a lot of the newest uh, private collections and foundations is again that the, that the collectors are acting like sheep. They're just they're they they're, they've hired advisors and consultants who are steering them toward the same, you know, six or seven galleries: uh, Matthew Marks and David Werner and Gagosian and Hauser and Worth and, and specific artists. And who knows who who's greasing whose palms in these kinds of interactions? But um, the Manils were just very special. We know that, and. Um, it's uh, I don't think that newer, very, very rich billionaire collectors feel that baggage because I think that there's a kind of egotism to being that incredibly rich where they want to carve out their own legacy and their own name and they think that what they're doing is the newest, biggest, coolest, most amazing thing. Uh, or they could be a little bit more old school about the whole thing and a little bit more... Um, thoughtful in the way that they roll out their foundation. I was thinking of the Flag Foundation in New York City, which is Glenn Furman's space, um, which is really, there's a lot of scholarship that goes into those shows. And, you know, those shows are essentially, he brings in independent curators to curate shows that are thematic, you know, or he'll do a one, a one person show, big solo shows. Often he's, he owns some of the work. He certainly does not own all of the work that's on display at the flag. Um, for any given show, sometimes the curators are probably asked to work to some degree with his collection and then bring in loans. But, you know, that's a kind of that's kind of a more old school custodial mix of private and public and scholarship and the public good and and those are those are killer shows too. Another thing about private museums is they can really just show. I mean, they can even show stuff that muse, that public museums right now can't even risk showing. Um, now, right now, museums and the whole art world is, is turning toward a, a pretty, I don't know how to say this without kind of having to over-explain it, but I think the art world is very conservative right now. I mean, it's playing it pretty safely because there are certain things that are just not acceptable right this second and may not be for years and years to come. But there's also all these new narratives coming in by all these artists who've not been paid attention to for this entire time. So we're seeing new kinds of things in museums, but private museums, again, I'll just say they have a little bit more leeway. And I've seen some shows at Flag Foundation that, that and they may have put up signs saying, you know, this, there's some adult content here, or there's stuff that's not good for kids, but they're not as beholden or as, uh, you know, that they're not going to be as um, um, strapped down by public, um, I don't know, denouncement for showing controversial stuff Mm -hmm. it's it's really antithetical that these places are the are the real institutions that could be and sometimes are punk rock well i mean on that note like going to see an entire ashley bickerton show that's not gonna happen i don't think that's going to happen in any of the public museums in new york city it can happen at the flag foundation and, you know, for those of us who are really, really interested in contemporary art, and I've always been interested in Ashley Bickerton and his brain and what he makes, uh, that was an incredible treat, you know? Um, so they, they can definitely serve a purpose. But Glenn has, Glenn Furman, I say, I'm saying his first name because I know him, but I just feel like there's a, there, there's the new collectors who are just, uh, again, kind of driven by ego. And then there's new collectors who seem to have some sense of the history of how these things work. And I was thinking about Howard Rachowski and 
how he he didn't necessarily go along with the grain. I mean, you know, he started collecting Arta Pavera before anyone else did. I mean, really deeply collecting Arta Pavera and then switched kind of over to Gutai, which... Uh, and became one of the the biggest uh, collectors of this modern contemporary Japanese artwork in the world. And um, what a resource. I mean, what a collection. And it's incredible. And it looks great in the warehouse. By the way, the warehouse is a repurposed building. Howard is nothing if not sensible and pragmatic. And um, he put it well, well outside of the 500-year flood zone in any part of Dallas. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, in a, it's in a warehouse, and it's called the warehouse. The inside, by the way, is absolutely spectacularly beautiful. He brought in an architect to make it spectacular. So while the outside doesn't look like much of anything, the interior uh, serves the artwork like nobody's business. I mean, it just makes the work look wonderful. And they have rotating shows, and different curators come in and bring different things, and they'll pull from Howard's collection, as well as Vernon Faulkner, who was the co-founder, who's passed away. And um, and then they'll bring another work. And not all of these museums, by the way, make loans. Um, I don't think that uh, Norton Simon loans out work. I, I, but I oh, do... Oh, right. Yeah, there's, there's a few rare instances where it's like, it's just basically the collection is shut off or the collection stays in place. Well, uh, Christina, I feel like that's, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, that's an interesting last thing to touch on. The the ongoing possible challenges and stipulations of these private institutions. Like sometimes when uh, the benefactor dies, you know, they leave in place a will that really kind of hamstrings these places. And I feel like, that's maybe, you know, we definitely saw that with the Barnes Foundation and what happened there. And I'm hoping at this point, you know, people are able to put time into setting up the back end, just like they set up the front end of the building and the collection and the storage and everything. Um, but it'll be interesting as these museums age, how that really works. Because I know it, these museums that have been around for a little while that are, you know, a generation or two away from their founders, there's always a question of, what that's happening right now is within the founder's purview. You know, if there isn't necessarily a like a written document that outlines something, there's still kind of a general sensibility as you're, you know, within a couple generations of that of that uh, benefactor. So it's always a question of would they have been interested in this artist who was born, you know, the year that they died? And does this work work within the collection? And I mean because everything that we do within this is increasingly subjective, I feel like everyone within these institutions, you know, a lot of times you get like-minded people to run it, but there's a lot of differing opinions and nuance around that conversation. Yeah, and it makes the entire thing feel kind of locked down and precious. But, yeah, I mean, I will say every time I go to the Manila, like, I still feel like I can kind of feel the spirit of the founders there and also the the idea that if you do start a museum, a private, a good private museum, and you have a certain amount of influence in, in the way that your city thinks about or treats art, that it can have a resounding effect. I mean, the resonance can be incredible. And, we, and I, I think that Houston, one of the reasons Houston is such an incredibly strong city is because of the De Manils and because of the Manila itself. And it makes me wonder if, you know, a place like Crystal Bridges, another private museum, uh, Alice Walton um, founded, you know, my mom just went to Crystal Bridges and I haven't been there since it opened. 
And she was talking about the hotels and the restaurants. And, you know, I was, I was, I was talking about the, the town and the first time I saw it. And she was talking about how much she thinks it's probably changed. I'm not going to say that Bentonville is going to become a Houston. But, um, but it does make an entire place seem a little bit more art-friendly and probably friendlier to artists in some regards because it changes the psychology of the place itself, of the city or the town itself. Um, we were talking about Rockport and the Rockport Center for the Arts. Once that place goes up, I don't see how it's not going to change the entire landscape, sensibility yeah. of Rockport, you know, and the psychology of the people who live there. I don't know. I mean, we're we're going to have to wait and see what happens to all these brand new private museums that have come up over the last 20 years and how they're going to shake out and what's going to happen to their collections. Of course, a huge part of this is that most, so many of these people started collections uh, and foundations, excuse me, and museums because they just they didn't want to lose control over their collection by giving it to another museum um, who may not want the entire collection, and they don't. You know, there's there's all kinds of you know, a collector's going to say, I want this painting to be on display for this amount of time, this, and they don't. They just don't have as much control over how their collection is seen or taken in or understood or contextualized, and so. Making their own space kind of takes care of that. Um, it's a grand American tradition. It is continuing because of wealth disparity. It's accelerated. That's what we're dealing with. Some of these are great, though. I'm not. I would never tell you to not go to see a private museum or support a private museum. I mean, we're still working out the kinks and the tax laws and everything. But it seems to me like, you know, just like going to the Broad, it's just still a really, really great way to go see some art. Agreed. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and if you have one nearby, go to a private museum. That's it. All right. We will be back in two weeks. And uh, until then, take care. And uh, if you can, go see some art. Go see some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Texas Talks Art, which is a series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. Each talk features curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. You can tune in every Tuesday at noon CST for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021 all this year. You can register for upcoming talks and watch past talks at texastalksart.org. I have virtually attended a number of these talks, and I can say they have been wonderful. Once again, that is texastalksart.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.